I'm going to make a statement and then ask you a question. I'm going to make a statement and then ask you a question. You ready? Here's the statement. It's 9 o'clock p.m., and it's time for bed. That's the statement. The question is, is that statement something to celebrate or something to bemoan? It's 9 o'clock, and it's time for bed. If you're a 50-year-old like me who loves the mornings, this is great news. Climbing into my bed, spending the next 20 minutes reading a book before I fall asleep is absolutely delightful. It's nine o'clock and time for bed is music to my ears. If I'm a 13-year-old child or a younger child, this is outrageous news. Especially if older siblings are given the incredibly unfair privilege of staying up later. You can imagine the protests over this intolerable bedtime. Nine o'clock, that's not fair. Why do they get to step, stay up? How many parents are familiar with this conversation? Okay. Consider how a tired mom feels about this statement and her child's response. Hearing a child say, that's not fair, and protesting a nine o'clock bedtime can be really discouraging. Because when you're up before your kids to make those lunches, get breakfast on the table before they rush out the door, run all over town making sure their life is more incredible than they'll ever really realize, warmly greet them when they come home, make a great dinner for the entire family, help everyone with homework, and then maybe get the younger kids settled in bed, and after all of that to hear, that's not fair, <laughs> can be really frustrating. I wonder how many parents have actually had the thought, I'll tell you what's not fair. <laughs> But you never verbalized it because you're spirit controlled. I trust that. What's interesting, I'm believing that in faith for you, okay? So uh, what's interesting about the situation is that the dynamic is the same in all three scenarios. It's a nine o'clock bedtime. The difference, and this is really important for Revelation 15 and 60, the difference is the perception of fairness based upon the role of the person who receives the statement. A child and a parent have very different views of a nine o'clock bedtime. Perspective shapes your understanding of fairness. I'm gonna say that again. Perspective shapes your understanding of fairness. That is Essential to understand as we unpack Revelation 15 and 16 because if you aren't aware of the vantage point from which you are reading these chapters, you will, you will draw the wrong conclusion about the text. These chapters are about divine judgment. They're intense, they're shocking, they're disturbing, and it's here in the Bible for a reason. God supplied John a vision 
And he included these kind of chapters in that vision. He, he could have simply skipped ahead and only talked about Revelation 20 and 21, the lovely and beautiful vision of the new heavens and the new earth. But if we're honest, if that were the case, I think we'd be a bit suspicious. It wouldn't feel very real. It would be like parents of children when asked, how is it being parents? Having a parent say, having children is the best. They bring you nothing but joy and happiness every day of your life. You don't read books by people who think that way about parenting because it's just, it's just not real. The lack of candor about the challenges hurts the credibility of the person who's talking. Revelation isn't like that because God isn't like that. And as these chapters make clear, there's judgment. And there's judgment because life is filled with rebellion. So in this text, we see these verses from two vantage points, the vantage point of heaven and the vantage point of earth. So heaven and earth. And the question that I want you to think about with me today is this, do I view life through the lens of heaven or through the lens of earth? Do I think about things from heaven to earth or earth to heaven? You may have heard it said before that he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. That can be true. But I know a lot more people who are so earthly minded, they're not a lot of heavenly good. The question we need to wrestle with today is, do you start with who is God and then do you ask who am I? Or do you start with here's what I think and then you ask what does God think? These are really important things to consider. And for those of you who are Christians, I hope you'll see how this affirms the beauty and the power of the gospel. And for those of you who are listening who are not yet Christian, I hope you understand the significance of what is in this text. And maybe this sermon will just help you to reorient a bit so you can start asking maybe some really important questions. I'll give you some at the end. So first, the heavenly scene in Revelation 15. Chapter 14 ended with two harvests. One was redemptive and the other was punitive. The scene on earth was troubling. Remember the wine press of God's wrath is what we learned about. Chapter 15 then shifts the focus from earth to heaven And once again, we see a reorientation in the vision. It's as though John keeps bouncing back and forth between earth and heaven. And it begins with John saying that he saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Similar language like this was in Revelation 12, where a great sign appeared in heaven. It was a woman and another sign a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns. So now we have another sign. What is this sign? Well, according to the text, it is seven angels with seven plagues, which it says are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now we've seen angels before and we've seen judgments before, but these are described as great and amazing. Why? Well, because the text tells us they are the last ones and with them the wrath of God is finished. 
Now, some people see these final judgments as taking place at the end of the great tribulation, and others see these bowl judgments or these final judgments as descriptive of the present judgment of God upon the world. The point is, is that this is divine endgame, the certain and final judgment of God. Look at verse two. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So first we see this sea of glass mingled with fire. Just imagine this, a sea of glass. Get that in your head. With fire. Remember, the sea was a symbol of chaos and disorder and evil, and John now sees something that resembles the sea, but it's firm, it's beautiful, it's contained. There's no waves, no storms. And the the image here is of the completeness of God's judgment. It also brings in imagery from Revelation chapter four, where in the throne room was this sea of glass like crystal. Additionally, this fire in the vision seems to emphasize the completeness of judgment since fire is usually associated with divine acts of deliverance and judgment. There's some connection here probably to the Exodus deliverance motif where we've got the Red Sea and a cloud and fire. In fact, we'll see this Exodus connection more completely in verse three. Notice that around this sea are God's people. Again, God's people are part of this vision. And verse two describes them with familiar terms. Those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. So they conquered and they have harps in their hands. Here again is a group of worshipers. Look at verse three. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses. This is historically significant because this was the song that was sung at the crossing of the Red Sea and the defeat of Pharaoh. It's found in Exodus 15, and this song is found in Deuteronomy 32. And if you were to compare Exodus 32, or Exodus 15 rather, Deuteronomy 32, and this particular text, you would find that Revelation 15 is a distillation of the themes from those two texts. Take note of the God-centeredness of what they are singing. Again, this is from heaven's perspective, Revelation 15, three, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, God the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It's an incredible song to be sung in light of both the historical significance in the Exodus narrative, but also its placement right in the middle of all kinds of material about divine judgment. So there's worship as judgment is taking place. And it's not that the people are celebrating the judgment, but rather the worship and the celebration is the starting point for the judgment. 
So the starting point for God's divine justice is his worth, his holiness, his majesty. And understanding who God is helps to frame what God does so that we can know why he does it. If you don't start with God and who he is, you won't understand why the judgment is necessary. So again, the question is, your definition of fairness, is it viewed from heaven to earth or is it viewed from earth to heaven? It's really important and that, that, that is what this text begs us to ask. You might think of worship as something that you do at the right time or in the right setting, like on Sundays. And that would be true, but worship in this setting is different. Given the glory of God, his majesty and his holiness, worshiping God in this setting is essential and non-negotiable. Not worshiping God in his presence would be outrageous, it would be inappropriate, it would even be rebellious. In other words, the glory of God is so captivating and so glorious that anything competing for it or compromising it is not just repulsive, it's dangerous. And in order to understand that, you have to see things from heaven's perspective. Verse five, we see seven angels, and where do they come out of? I looked, he says, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness was opened. Here's a Old Testament model of a tabernacle. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues. So again, notice that these angels, these messengers of divine deliverance aren't just appearing out of nowhere, they're coming from some place. And where are they coming from? They're coming from a heavenly vision of the tabernacle. The point is, out of the central place of God's glory comes these angels, and they're clothed, notice, with pure, bright linen and golden sashes. The angels have a heavenly glory about them. They're messengers delivering something. Look at verse seven. One of the four creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So everything previously in chapter 15 is recorded in order to set up this moment. These seven plagues will be fully unveiled in chapter 16, we'll get to them in a moment, and we will see them in great and disturbing detail. But first, and importantly, we're told about their source. They come from the presence of God. Verse seven says, who lives forever and ever. What's more, when they are sent on their mission, the sanctuary is filled with the smoke of God's glory and power so that no one could enter into the sanctuary until the seven plagues are finished. John is seeing something here that is really, really important. You can't understand earthly judgment unless you understand God's divine beauty and holiness. That's why he's starting there. These judgments are not things that God merely allows to happen. 
No, no, this judgment is brought from the presence of God. It's carried out by angels and it must be completed. It will be completed. Why? Because the holiness of God demands it. This is a heavenly scene. And you know, I think, as I tried to get my head around this text and how to help you feel what's in here, it's hard to fully appreciate what's happening here and why it's so significant because we know very little about the full display of God's glory. We know earthly glory, we know earthly living, we don't know heavenly glory, we don't don't know heavenly living, and as a result, we tend to lose the deep sense of understanding and appreciation for what judgment is because we don't know really what God is like. We don't feel his holiness, we don't feel his glory. Imagine, maybe this will help, imagine walking the Garden of Eden before the presence of sin. Imagine walking around and seeing the uncorrupted splendor. And then imagine touring Eden after the rebellion And then considering that in one generation, the highest point of God's created order not only disobeyed God, but there's a murder in the first family. Wow. Think about the shock and horror of learning how far the created order had fallen. And sometimes it's helpful to understand how how far the created order fell by remembering what it was like or just imagining what it was like before the presence of sin. Let me, let me give you an illustration. This, this is as close as what I can get to and maybe this doesn't work. Imagine that you have a small group in your home of eight people And over the course of a year, you find deep fellowship and friendship and community, spiritual growth together. Everyone looks forward to coming. It's like the best. It's the kind of relationship environment that you've only dreamed about. In fact, you love it so so much, you think, why don't we invite some other people to come into the mix and kind of share the love of this beautiful moment? And so you invite three people to join your group. You think it's gonna multiply the joy. Sadly, there's one person who turns out to be a huge problem. He's not interested in the discussion unless he can score points and make people look bad. He says awkward and rude things. It seems to be he doesn't know how to communicate in any other way. And then you hear that he's like sharing what's going on in the group with other people, confidential things. And three months later after his arrival, the group is in shambles, nobody shares anymore. People privately begrudge coming. They show up with smiling faces, but the drive, you have people saying, I I don't know if I wanna go anymore. Obligation has replaced anticipation, and it's awful. In fact, so so people are so discouraged now, they're actually considering leaving. And you begin to remember what it was like before this one person was in the room. And part of the grief is how different and bad it is because of one person. 
Just to be clear, I don't have any one person in our church in mind, okay? Just, who's he talking about? You, I guess, I don't know. So imagine that little illustration and that thing that you feel a little bit, because we all know what that's like at some level, and imagine we're not just talking about your small group, we're talking about the glory of God. There is going to be cosmic relief when God turns the world back to Eden. Church, we don't know how grieving our present earthly existence really is to God. It's why Jesus died. It's why he's coming again. And it's important to think about this scene from a heavenly perspective, lest we, like a 13-year-old child, draw the conclusion, what I'm about to read to you in chapter 16, this isn't fair. Fair? Well, it depends where you're at in the story. And it depends what seat you're sitting in. And I wanna suggest to you that we have a far underdeveloped heavenly perspective. And John is trying to give it to us. That's the heavenly scene. Here's the earthly scene, chapter 16. We're gonna move quickly. Verse one, I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go, pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Here they come, verse two. It begins with painful sores. The first angel went, poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. Notice, boils and pain for the mark of the beast, mark for mark. And it's making life miserable. Verse three, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing that was in the sea died. Fourth, or third, excuse me, verse four. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. So here we have the contamination of fresh water, water necessary to sustain human life. The text says that it became like blood. We're not sure if this is literally blood or if it's figurative language to connect with what follows in verse five. Look at verse five. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters saying, here I've got this text for you on the screen behind me. Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you have brought these judgments. And again, here's the connection with blood. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the almighty, just and true are your judgments. And then verse eight, we find a burning sun. The angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and this that follows is important and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. That's important. Because you're gonna see this become a theme. 
Rather than repent, what human beings do when faced with divine judgment, seated from an earthly perspective, without a heavenly vantage point, they conclude this isn't fair, God's mean, and they double down in their sin. It's what we do. It's what you, Christian, would have done if God, by his mercy, didn't reach into your heart, open your eyes, and help you to see, don't double down. Get on your face and turn and receive Jesus. And that happened not because you were amazing, it happened because God was gracious. This is the normative pattern of human beings. We double down. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. The people gnawed their tongues in anguish. Here it is again, and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores, and again, They did not repent of their deeds. Here it is again. Verse 12. Now we have deception that's taking over the world. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up. The river Euphrates was like a a boundary marker for the empires of that day. And the idea, if if the Euphrates is dried up, it means there's no borders and the effect is there's going to be massive conflicts as kings from other countries are going to either invade or link arms for an invasion to prepare the way for the kings from the east. There it is in verse 12. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go to assemble them for battle for the great day of God the Almighty. They assemble, according to verse 16, at a place that is in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Some people see this as a literal place with a little literal battle. Others see it as a figurative place. Notice the exhortation, though, right in the middle of this. John wants Christians to remember something important. Verse 15, it doesn't fit, but he throws it in there. It's it's parenthetical in my Bible. Behold, this is Jesus, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. So here was a exhortation, almost like a pause in the middle of all this material on judgment to speak to Christians directly. Listen, this is in the Bible for a reason. Let's be awake, let's be realized. We're living from a heavenly perspective, not an earthly perspective. And then we find the end in verses 17 through 21. I'm just gonna read them to you. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple and from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. What a moment it would have been if the Bible 
said, when the people experienced the wrath of God, the whole world humbled their hearts, they repented of their sins and turned to Christ as king. But that's not what it says. The text ends with a familiar theme of people cursing God because the judgment is so severe. Listen, this is what happens when people in rebellion only live with an earthly perspective. They're enraged that God would punish them. They're shocked that they would be held accountable. They don't think it's fair. But the reason they don't think it's fair is because they don't understand the vantage point of heaven. Back to my first illustration. Who are you in the story when you say it's not fair? It depends on how you view that nine o'clock bedtime based upon the seat, the role, the perspective, the life experience, the wisdom, and what John wants us to see is when you consider the rebellion of the earth from the vantage point of God's holiness and his righteousness and his purity and his unbelievable patience, the judgment of God, quite frankly, makes sense. Do I live from heaven's perspective or do I live from earth's perspective? So admittedly, this is a heavy text. I've thought all week and weekend, how do I apply this? Here, here is the pinnacle of the book of Revelation as it relates to judgment. And so I just wanna make this really simple. I wanna take this text and apply it to those of you who are not Christians yet, you've not turned from your sins and received Jesus as your savior, and, and I wanna speak to those who are Christians. Just two applications, two vantage points. How do you think about Revelation 15 and 16 if you're not yet a Christian or if you are a Christian? First, if you're not yet a Christian. If this is your first Sunday in a church in a long time, please come back because the, the, the whole Bible isn't like this, I promise. But, but I gotta be honest with you, this is in the Bible and it's here for a reason and you need to hear it. I, I pray that if you're not yet a Christian, these two chapters will give you something to really think about. I don't want to scare you into being a Christian. But I would like you to ask yourself some questions. First, do you see the effects of evil around you? Do you see even the evil within you? Do you think it would be okay if those things were never made right? And how do you think that the evil in you and evil in the world is going to be taken care of? And in light of what I've just read, do you think that Revelation 15 and 16 is true? 
And if not, are you willing to take the risk of being wrong? You see, the message of the Bible is simply that this is all true, but that God, through Christ, has already poured out the just judgment for sin. Like we see in Revelation 15, he's already poured that out, but he poured that out on Jesus at the cross, and the Bible makes a promise that those who turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus, who acknowledge, I've got evil inside of me, I've got evil around me, I say evil things, I do evil things, that can't just go without some level of accountability, The Bible says you're right, and the solution of that is Jesus died to pay for your sins so that those who put their trust in him are forgiven and cleansed and declared righteous even though they don't deserve it. And my question to you, if you're not yet a Christian, is what are you gonna do with Revelation 15 and 16? And I plead with you, why not put your trust in Jesus today? To those who are Christians, these chapters serve as a reminder of the importance of seeing life from heaven's perspective. This is a moment in this text for us to reflect on who is God, what he is like, and what he has done for us through Christ. It's an opportunity for us to reflect on the glory of God, the nature of his holiness, and the purity of his character. It's a moment for us to be reminded about the brokenness of the world and to long for his soon return. It's a reminder that grace is grace because it's unfair. Grace is unmerited, it's unearned, and it's undeserving. And this text, seeing clearly the judgment of God, ought to help you understand why the cross was necessary, why we sing about Jesus, why his death, burial, and resurrection has become not just what we believe, but it becomes foundational to who we are, and why God's grace isn't just something we believe in, it becomes the fuel for every part of our life. We live on earth because of God's grace. We see the world through heavenly perspective and we long for Jesus to return. We long for him to make everything right. We long for the return back to Eden because the brokenness of the world both in us and around us makes us grieve. It's a reminder that grace is fundamentally unfair. And in light of Revelation 15 and 16, that also makes it unbelievably good news. The only reason, Christian, that you're not on the receiving end of this kind of judgment is only because you've run to Christ. Grace, unmerited, unearned and undeserving and completely unfair. Thanks be to God.
Lord, we thank you for this really challenging passage. For the reminder of the importance and the centrality of your holiness and that we are called to live with a heavenly perspective, not merely in earthly. And so would you now, Holy Spirit, apply this passage in ways that I could only dream of. There's no way that human words, the English language, my attempt to distill this passage is gonna do anything unless you, Holy Spirit, empower it. And so we pray that even now you would do so. Make us a people who long for your return because we see the beauty of your grace and we understand the immeasurable worth of your holiness. And we pray this in the name of our gracious King who died for us, that we might live in Jesus' name. Amen.